0: Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us for Church Online today. And if you're new to Community Christian, my name's Jason. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And real quick, I just want to remind all of the parents right now who are watching with kids in the room, now would be a great time to go and get them set up with some sort of activity, maybe in a separate room for the remainder of the service, because we want you to be able to focus and to engage with this teaching time free from distractions. Well, you know, for the last 10 weeks, we've studied the life of Jesus together. And we've talked about how he came to bring something brand new, something greater into our world, something greater for our world. And today, we're going to go to the moment in the life of Jesus that looks like the end. But in actuality, this end was actually the beginning. We're going to walk through one day in the life of Jesus. But now, I'll just go ahead and warn you, it's going to be a little bit different. We're going to Actually, walk backwards through this day and see how it unfolds. So, here's where we'll begin. It's Friday evening. We're outside the gates of Jerusalem, and on a hillside are three crosses. On the outside crosses hang the bodies of two criminals, and in the middle cross, well, it's empty because its victim is already dead and he has been taken down from the cross. But over that middle cross hangs a sign with these three words written in three different languages. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Now the question is, how did our story get here? In other words, why did Jesus have to die? I mean, how did this seemingly harmless religious man end up being executed as an enemy of the state? Now, when you go back and read the eyewitness accounts of all that happened on that Friday, you meet lots of powerful forces, lots of characters who wind up sending Jesus to the cross. But when you really look at it, and you really understand what's going on, the people who think they're in charge, who are sending Jesus to the cross, they're really not the ones in charge. In fact, you're going to see as we go through this story that everybody on Friday had an agenda. But what exactly is it that they want? Which agenda, in the end, winds up winning? And how did Jesus really end up on that cross? Now, the first major player in the death of Jesus is Rome, the Roman Empire. See, Rome would say that Jesus died because he's a threat to Rome, and any threat to Rome has to die. But The question is, why was he such a threat? Well, he he was called Jesus Christ. Now, when most people hear that name, they just think, well, Christ is Jesus' last name. That's not it at all. Christ means anointed one or Messiah. And this idea of a Messiah is really important if you're going to understand the story of Jesus. See, a lot of people in Jesus' day were claiming to be a Messiah. And the reason was the people in Jerusalem, the Israelites, the Jewish people, wanted a political leader, a Messiah, to lead them in a revolt against the Romans. They want someone who will overthrow Rome and clean up all this corruption they find in their temple because now it's sort of being influenced by Roman rule. They want someone who will lead Israel into freedom. Now there's a lot of wannabe messiahs in the first century in Jesus' day. They had different thoughts about what the messiah would be, but everyone agreed that a messiah was going to be a very powerful figure. He was going to lead Israel to freedom and he was going to overthrow Rome. They all understood that about the Messiah. In fact, if you look in the pages of the New Testament in your Bible, you'll find out about several of these. Acts chapter five is one place. It says this, some time ago, Thutis appeared claiming to be somebody and about 400 men rallied to him and he was killed. See, in the history books, it tells us exactly what the Bible confirms that Thutis was actually called a Messiah. He got a bunch of people on his side. He led a revolt against Rome. He ended up being captured by the Romans And they decapitated him in Jerusalem in front of the crowds. Because that's what happened when you messed with Rome. Uh, There was another one. His name was Judas the Galilean. It says this in Acts chapter 5. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census. He led a band of people in revolt, and he too was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. Uh, This guy, Judas, uh, started a group called the Zealots. Now, the Zealots, uh, they wanted to use violence to overthrow Rome. So uh, he takes up arms, and he gets a bunch of followers to go with him, and Judas and most of his followers, well, they get captured by Rome, and they crucified 2,000 of his followers. Now, I want you to imagine 2,000 crosses all left up by the Romans on the Galilean countryside. Now, this moment this moment in history, it happened when Jesus was a little boy. Remember Judas, this guy we're talking about? He was from Galilee. Jesus grew up in a town called Nazareth in the region of Galilee. So as a little boy, Jesus would have no doubt seen those crosses where Rome killed people who followed a man who claimed to be the Messiah. Think about that see, things like this in the first century, they happened over and over again. There were at least 18 separate wannabe messiahs in Jesus' day that we know of, and all of them get executed, and Jesus is executed too, but Jesus is different. See, Jesus is not a military leader like all the others. In fact, he deliberately rejects that role. In the book of John chapter 6, Jesus does this big miracle. You know, He feeds thousands of people, and the crowds want to make him king by force, it tells us. They want a Messiah who's going to take down Rome. What does Jesus do? He won't have anything to do with it. He withdraws. He goes into the hills all by himself, which really frustrates the people. Because unlike any of these other wannabe messiahs, Jesus just keeps refusing to lift a finger against Rome. So again, you have to ask that question. Why does he end up on a cross? Well, why don't we back up in the story just a little bit to an earlier scene that happened on that Friday that Jesus died. The chief priests, they bring Jesus. They've arrested him. They bring Jesus to a man named Pontius Pilate. Now, who's Pilate? Well, Pilate rules over Jerusalem on behalf of Caesar during this time. He's like Caesar's number two guy. And his job it's just a big headache. He has to keep all these different Jewish religious groups in line, and all of them wind up hating Caesar in Rome. And he's got to figure out how to keep a lid on this and keep the peace. Now, first, he's got a group known as the chief priest he has to deal with. Now, these are guys who are in charge of the temple. If you were to take a word to describe uh, the chief priest's strategy for dealing with Rome, it would be this word, collaborate. They have to stay close enough to Rome so Rome will let them continue to rule over the temple or the Jewish religious system, but they can't get too close to the Romans or the crowds in in Jerusalem, they're not going to like them too well because these guys are Jewish, and they're not really popular at this time with the Jewish people, and they have to stay on their side. Then you've got another group of people. They're called the Pharisees. You may have heard of these guys. They are mentioned a lot in the biographies of Jesus, and these guys are mostly the scholars or the teachers of the law. If you need a word to associate with them what their strategy was to handle Rome, was they wanted to purify. They, They believed that Israel's problem is they've just neglected to keep the Jewish law. So if they, they believe that they can just get a group of people who are serious enough to obey the law, purify themselves before God, then that'll make God happy, and God will destroy Rome, and he'll liberate Israel. Then there's another group. We talked about them earlier. They're called the Zealots. The Zealots' strategy was they were going to fight. They would say, Rome is evil. We ought to take up arms. If we do that... If we fight against them, then God will bless our efforts and he'll help us take down Rome. And then finally, there's another group and they're called the Essenes. Their strategy is, we're just going to withdraw from the whole thing. I mean, they said it's not just that the Romans are bad. This whole system, the temple system, the Jewish religion, it's so corrupted. We're not going to have anything to do with it. So they wouldn't go to the temple. They wouldn't bring sacrifices. And they started their own little community. And, when they, and they believe if we finally get this right and we segment ourselves off and we do, we do things God's way, then God will come to our rescue. He'll finally wipe out all the collaborators and all the Romans and everybody else that's corrupt, and we'll finally have freedom. Now, it's Pilate's job to keep a lid on all this mess, all of these groups. And you just need to know, Pilate was ruthless about doing his job. In fact, one time there were some people gathered at the temple for worship. They're from Galilee the place where Jesus is from, and Pilate decides that they're a threat. So he has them executed in the temple, in the holiest place of the temple, at the holiest moment of their lives when they're offering sacrifices. And to add insult to injury, Pilate has the blood of these people mixed with their sacrifices. Again, this is the most holy thing imaginable to them, and he just desecrates it. That's Pilate. Another time, Pilate steals money from the temple, and he goes and uses it to build an aqueduct for the people. And the Israelites are so furious that a bunch of them start to protest. So what does Pilate do? He has all the protesters executed. Eventually, Pilate gets so ruthless and he slaughters so many of the Jewish people that, and he causes so much unrest in that area that Caesar fires him and brings him back to Rome. In fact, an ancient writer writes this about Pilate. He says, his rule was marked by bribery, insults, robbery, supreme cruelty, executions without a trial, and a furious, vindictive temper. That's Pilate. That's the man that Jesus stands before right now. Jesus' life is in his hands. And the reason I bring all of that up is I want you to understand this stuff because it gives you a better perspective on what's happening on Friday. So the chief priests, they bring Jesus to this man, Pilate, and here's what they charge him with they say. We found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. He claims to be Messiah, a king. Now, you just need to know that these chief priests, they couldn't care less about whether anybody pays taxes to Caesar. They don't care. They're just trying to put pressure on Pilate. They want to make Pilate do what they want him to do. They're pushing his buttons. Pilate doesn't go for it, though. And it's not because he's soft. Remember, we've, we proved that. He's not a soft guy. It's not that he feels sorry for Jesus. Pilate always wants to resist these chief priests because he doesn't want to do what they tell him to do because if they get stronger, well, then he's weaker. This whole scene is about politics. It's about power. It's about money. And at this point in the story, Pilate then finds out Jesus is from Galilee. And he thinks, well, there's a ruler named Herod, and he's got jurisdiction over Galilee. So Pilate just sends Jesus to Herod. Herod sees what's going on, and he says, man, I'm not touching this with a 10-foot pole. He sends him back to Pilate. And at this point, Pilate's frustrated. He turns to the crowds of Jewish people gathered around, and he says, you know, it's feast time. It's the Passover. And every time this comes around, every year, we release a prisoner, which was just their custom. So I'll give you a choice. We can either release Jesus, who's harmless, or we'll release a murderer, whose name was Barabbas. And the crowd yells out that they want to release the murderer. But now knowing what you and I know, you kind of start to understand why. See, Barabbas, he's a murderer. But at least he's willing to kill Romans. That's why he's on trial. So the crowd says, look, at least this guy will stand up to Rome. Jesus won't do anything. He won't go after the Romans. So if you're going to let go of somebody, then let go of Barabbas. Then there's this famous scene where Pilate, after he hears this, he washes his hands in front of the crowd. A lot of people misunderstand this. It's not that Pilate has a sensitive conscience. It's not that he's worried about Jesus or he thinks Jesus doesn't deserve to die. That's not why he washes his hands. He couldn't care less about this powerless, harmless, phony Messiah. Pilate doesn't want to risk having Caesar think he's soft on these anti-Rome terrorists. So he brings Jesus back into his palace and he turns to him and he asks him, he says, so tell me, are you the king of the Jews? Now, Right here, if Jesus says the right thing, if he refuses to make that claim, it's very possible that Pilate lets him go free, which is so ironic because earlier in Jesus' ministry, over and over and over again, you hear people ask Jesus the same question. And most of the time, Jesus, Jesus just has a chance. He can just one time say, yeah, I'm the Messiah. And if he would have said that, nearly all of Jerusalem, all of Israel, would have risen up, taken up arms, and even died for Jesus if they believed that's who he was. But he never would take that position. He never would say it. He won't fight. He won't lead an uprising. Now, what's interesting is if you look through the biographies of Jesus, over and over in the oddest sort of ways, he will tell people that he's the Messiah, but he does it in the strangest places. He'll do it when he's outside Israel, outside of Jerusalem, when he's in Samaria, of all places, with people who who aren't very important. See, this is why the crowds in Jerusalem turn on him so fast. Some of you know this story. In fact, I think we mentioned it in our kids' time. On Sunday, just five days before the Friday Jesus dies, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he's riding a donkey. And the crowds gather around him and they start waving palm branches and they hail him as a warrior, a king, the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for. That's why we celebrate today and we call it Palm Sunday. And a lot of people think, It doesn't really make sense that on Sunday they're waving palm branches and they're loving him, and then on Friday they turn on him so fast, but it absolutely makes sense. It's because on Palm Sunday they thought, here's the revolution. But Jesus, he doesn't revolt. He doesn't lift his sword. But now, when nobody's around and he's all alone with Pilate, when he's in the hands of the chief priests and there's nobody but Pilate around, there's no chance of an army, rising up to defend him. Nobody's there to hear him. Now, Jesus finally gives a definitive answer to Pilate of all people. When there's no chance that his words are going to be misinterpreted as something political or military in any way, Jesus says, okay, Pilate, that's me. I'm their king. I'm the one they've been waiting for. But my kingdom is not of this world. It's not what you or anybody else thinks it's going to be. But yeah, I'm a king. And with those words, Jesus knows what's about to happen to him. And Pilate pronounces the sentence. Now, Here's the thing. Pilate makes it clear. He doesn't want this to happen. He doesn't want to have to crucify Jesus. So again, we're back to that question. Who's really making this happen? Well, we have to back up again further in the day on Friday. Why do these chief priests want Jesus dead? Why do they even bring him to Pilate in the first place? Here's what's going on. Shortly before Friday, Jesus had raised a guy named Lazarus from the dead. In fact, he had done lots of other miracles, but that was probably his most significant. People start to talk about him, and they're starting to believe in Jesus. So these Pharisees and these chief priests, they call a meeting. And one of them in the meeting says, this man, Jesus, he performs miraculous signs. And if we let him go on like this soon, everybody's going to believe in him. And then the Roman army is going to come. They're going to destroy our temple and destroy our nation. Now, when we look back at history, we find out that fear makes a lot of sense. In fact, that's exactly what happened about 40 years after Jesus died. There was one revolt or one wannabe Messiah too many. And the Romans came in and they destroyed the temple, virtually obliterated the nation of Israel, at least in Jerusalem. And these chief priests, they knew what could happen. They knew if unrest got too strong in Jerusalem, Rome would swoop in and destroy it. And eventually that's what happened. But here's what they also knew. They also knew that Jesus himself wasn't really a military threat. I mean, they understood exactly what he was teaching. His movement, it was another kind of threat. Jesus was claiming and living out in real life that the kingdom of God that everybody had been waiting for was somehow now present on earth. The love of God, the power of God, the grace of God, the salvation of God was present only It wasn't in the temple. It wasn't in the sacrifices. It wasn't in any of the things that these religious leaders were fighting so hard to keep from losing. It was in Jesus. Through this one man, through what he said, through how he lived and how he loved, he was telling everybody that God's presence, God's blessing, God's forgiveness, God's guidance, they were now available to the whole world through him. See, not only had no one ever done this before, no one ever thought like this before, And it was a threat to these chief priests and everything they stood for. And they couldn't let it stand. So in this same meeting, the high priest stands up and he speaks. His name's Caiaphas. He's kind of like the guy in charge. And he says this, Don't you realize that it's better if one man dies for our people than for our whole nation to get destroyed? So before they ever take Jesus to Pilate, the chief priests, the Pharisees, they have another trial. And it takes place with a group known as the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is just like Israel's Supreme Court. It's made up basically of chief priests and Pharisees. But they have Jesus arrested on Friday. They do it early in the morning. And then they have their own little trial before they take him to Pilate. And it happens before daybreak while it's still dark so they can keep it a secret because most likely this this whole thing they're doing, it's illegal. But these chief priests, they've got this really delicate task in front of them. And here's what they're up against. They have to get the crowds to hate Jesus, these crowds that loved him on Sunday, right? They have to get Rome and Pilate to crucify Jesus. Now, the quickest way to get Pilate to crucify Jesus is you've got to tell him that Jesus is a threat to Rome. He's a threat to Caesar and their power. But if they say that, the crowds will love Jesus because, remember, that's what they're looking for. So they have to come up with another charge, two charges, in fact. So they, first, they charge Jesus with blasphemy against God for claiming that he's God's son so that the crowds are going to hate him. And then they charge him with treason so that Pilate will kill him. And it's a really hard thing to do. In fact, they can't even get it done at their little secret trial in the middle of the night. The book of Mark records it, and it says this. The chief priests, the whole Sanhedrin, they were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they didn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. So they can't even get their story straight. So, once again, all Jesus has to do is just be silent. The charges are bogus, they're not going to stick. So, what does Jesus do? He makes no attempt to correct the false witnesses, he makes no attempt to explain his mission. He sits there in silence while they mock him. And then they finally ask him one final time Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God? And Jesus makes a statement. In fact, it's the only thing he says throughout this trial. Jesus says, I am. Now, that phrase right there, I am, that's more than just an admission. That is the name used for God in the Old Testament. See, Jesus just placed himself as equal with God. And in that room... He just pronounced his death sentence. But he goes on. He says, and you are going to see the Son of Man, referring to himself, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, what does that mean? Well, that phrase Jesus used, he's not saying you're going to see a body float down from the sky. He's he's referring to something that they all would have recognized, an image from the Old Testament, their scriptures. In essence, what Jesus is saying is, hey, now, right in this moment, You are seeing God in front of you. He is present and he is at work uniquely in me. And with that, Jesus hands that group of men everything they need for their verdict. The verdict they couldn't get from all these false witnesses. In fact, Jesus kind of does their work for them. You have to ask yourself, why? Why would he do this? (laughs) Well, we have to back up one more time. We have to back up before the cross, before the meeting with Pilate, before the trial with the chief priest, and now it's 2 a.m. on Friday morning. We're in a place called Gethsemane. It's a garden. And Jesus is there, and he's praying because he knows what's about to happen. He knows that the people who want him dead are on their way to arrest him. And Jesus has lots of options. He can fight like the zealots. I mean, think about it. He's young. He's got charisma. The crowds love him. They would follow him to the death. He could do that. Or he could withdraw like the Essenes, remember? He could go into the desert. He could start this safe little religious community and a lot of people would follow him and he'd be safe and he could get a lot of followers to listen to him. Or he could collaborate with the chief priest just like they're doing. I mean, imagine if Jesus had the temple and the power of all the religious leaders on his side. What, What kind of platform would he have for his teaching then? What could he accomplish then? Imagine it. Or he can try to cut a deal with Pilate. Can you imagine if Jesus was connected with the influence of the Roman Empire and he was working on the inside? What might might he be able to do for the world in that case? I mean, Jesus could also call out to his Father. I mean, think about it. God had done so many miraculous things through Jesus before. Jesus could have asked for a legion of angels if he wanted to, to do this one more big miracle that maybe would convince everybody and dazzle everybody and rally everybody to his side, and Jesus does none of those things. I mean, you have to admit this. Regardless of what you believe about Jesus being God, this is so unbelievably impressive. I mean, this one lone, deserted, vulnerable man says in this moment, I know what I have to do, and I will not fight, I will not run, I will not deal, I will not dazzle, I'll die. I'll die. Now, Jesus would say, I don't want to do it, but Heavenly Father, this is not about what I want. I will do whatever you want. Come on, admit it. That's unbelievable. I mean, think about the decision that Jesus makes right here. He is choosing to die out of love for everybody else. See, Jesus knows rebels always die, so He dies on a cross in place of the rebels, rebels like Barabbas. Remember him? He literally saves Barabbas' life that day. Jesus also knows that the crowds, they're just waiting for a word from him. One word from Jesus, and they would all rise up. They'd go kill a bunch of Romans, and they'd take over. And when they did, most of them would wind up being slaughtered because of it. So Jesus keeps silent. He doesn't say a word. And again, he goes to the cross to save Jerusalem. He dies for all these people who wind up turning on him in the end, who eventually scream, crucify him. He says, I will lay down my life for these people, even though they don't understand what I'm doing for them. Jesus knows he could run, but if he does, his disciples will be captured, and they'll be gathered up together, and they'll get executed. It happened to every other wannabe Messiah and all of his followers, and the disciples, they know it too, and they're scared to death. But again, Jesus dies, he goes to the cross, and his disciples' lives are saved. Listen, I don't know what you believe about Jesus, but everything that happens on Friday, this is a matter of history. All of this stuff happened. Jesus sized up the situation at every moment all along the way that Friday, and every decision Jesus made was calculated. He was in control the whole time. History tells us that even Pilate, who thought he was in control, He winds up writing a sign and hung it up on the cross. Remember we talked about this in the beginning. The sign on the cross in three different languages so that the whole world could read it. And it said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Think about that. The entire gospel message was written in that one phrase by a man who intended to wipe it out. Jesus outfought He outmaneuvered, he outcrafted every group, every power, and not even just that. Mostly Jesus just went about outloving everybody. Because on Friday, Jesus had an agenda. Everybody else had their agenda on Friday, but Jesus had one too. And his agenda was love. I'll die on Friday. And on Friday, he does die for everyone in that story and for everyone in the world. And nobody else caused that to happen. Not Pilate, not Herod, not Caesar, not the chief priests, not even the crowd. Jesus said this, no one takes my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily because I have the authority to lay it down when I want. And I have the authority to take it up again. So on Friday, the one true Messiah in a world of wannabes lays down his life. On Friday, God declared his heart for you and for me and every other person who ever lived. On Friday, in that garden, that decision gets made. On Friday, in that garden, Jesus said, I'll suffer, I'll die, I choose love. That was Friday. And it looked like the end, but it was just the beginning because Sunday's coming. and That's what we'll celebrate next week. But today, I hope you see and I hope you understand Jesus' death on the cross, it was no accident. It was a choice he made out of love for you and for me so that we could live a life free from the fear and the consequences of death. And now, Jesus is inviting us to follow him into this new kind of life, this new kingdom that Jesus has established through his death and resurrection. And let me say, if you're not following him today and you're curious or you'd like to begin following him and you're not even sure what that looks like or maybe you just have questions and you want to know more i want to invite you right now will you go to our website it's right here on the screen for you and when you go there click on that link that says make a decision and when you do that and you fill out that form give us your information we'll reach out to you this week and we will help you take your next steps in following jesus now if you are a follower of jesus in just a few moments We're going to remember his death the way that he asked us to through what we call communion. And I think it's so amazing right now, we're in these days of isolation, and we're having less physical contact with one another, that God in his wisdom left us with a physical way that we can touch, something we can taste to remember Jesus. So that's why we take these symbols of bread and juice that represent Jesus' body and blood that was given freely, voluntarily for us on the cross. And right now, we're going to lead you in a song. And it's going to remind us of all of that. And I want you to listen to the words of this song. But while the song is being sung, if you'd like to participate in communion with us today, I want you to go ahead, take the emblems that you have there with you, and eat and drink and remember Jesus. And one more thing. Don't go anywhere yet, because we have one more important portion of this service that's going to happen after the song. And I don't want you to miss it. So stay tuned for that. But for right now, Whenever you feel like you're ready, during this next song, eat and drink your communion emblems, and let's remember Jesus together.